RUF, especially uh, welcome to you. Um, just to give you a little bit of an idea about what we do here, RUF is a, uh, a group that, that exists both for Christians and for non-Christians. This is not a Christian club exclusive Christian gathering. What we do is that we gather together and we open up the Bible to honestly see, okay, what is the message for us? And what does that have to do with me if I'm a Christian? What does this have to do with me if I'm not a Christian? And so this, this semester, what we've been doing is working our way through um, the book of Deuteronomy, which is not a heavily trafficked book of Scripture, but it's the fifth book of the Bible, and uh, it's an important book of the Bible, so we're looking at it. And if you have been here week after week, you will have known, or at least I've tried to make known, that the book of Deuteronomy is really about God. It's kind of simple. We've, we've been looking at just different attributes and different characteristics of God from all different kinds of angles. And so tonight, we're going to look, look at this two attributes of God that typically get ignored. And I don't think we typically think about all that often. So we're going to look at it tonight. And to, to whet your ad, uh, appetite, to whet it, um, <laughs> I am going to read. This is, I, I read this in a commentary this week. A guy named Chris Wright wrote a, a great commentary on Deuteronomy. And this paragraph just kind of made my mouth water. Maybe I'm just a nerd, but uh, let's see what it does to you. He says this, our passage tonight, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 through 22, he says this, is unquestionably one of the richest texts in the Hebrew Bible, exalted and poetic in its language, comprehensive and challenging in its message. It purposefully tries to boil down the whole theological and ethical content of the book into memorable phraseology, packed and pregnant, rich and resonant of all of the surrounding preaching. Because the book of Deuteronomy is a series of Moses' preaching. And he says this, Indeed, there are not many dimensions of Old Testament theology that are not directly expressed or indirectly echoed in this mini-symphony of life and faith. I like that. You ready to hear it? Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders that you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers went down into Egypt, were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let me pray for us real quick before we jump in. <clears throat> Father, I ask for your help. You know that we have no hope of understanding what this passage means apart from your help. So Holy Spirit, we come and we invite you to join us and to open up our eyes and to unclog our ears so that we would be able to see what you have for us. And we ask only on the merits of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, we're just going to jump in. 
I think that this passage highlights three things, as it typically does. Uh, It's going to raise three different questions, and it's going to help us answer it. And here are the questions. Who God is, what are we to do in light of who God is, and how in the world are we supposed to do it? So three, three basic questions. Who, what, and how? So here's the first question that this passage helps us answer is who God is. And what this passage does is it unites and it glues together two aspects of God that typically get separated in our culture. And here they are. Here's the first one. This, this uh, first aspect of God that we're going to look at is God's transcendence. And you immediately think, okay, what is that? Transcendence is a word that evokes... God's majesty. It, it, is, it, it is talking about his bigness, his otherness. He is exalted as a royal king. This is his uh, majesty, you could say. So look in verse uh, 14. It says this. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. It says God has cosmic and universal ownership of everything. Look at the heavens, look at the earth, look at everything in it. Yeah, God, God owns all that. He has cosmic and universal ownership of everything. And then look at the uh, verse, uh, couple of verses down, verse 17. It says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. It says, you see all the other gods out there, right? They're powerful. They're strong. The God of the Bible is their God. That's how unique and powerful he is. He, he is a... He is utterly unique and, and wonderful, and, and he, is, he possesses all the power in the universe, in other words. All the other gods, he is God of gods and Lord of lords, in other words. So basically, you see how this passage captures God's bigness, God's transcendence. He is, he is holy, completely, and wonderfully other, capital O. That's God's transcendence. But even though it highlights God's transcendence in the same breath, it also highlights God's imminence. You think... Okay, what is this? It's, it's you know, not exactly the opposite, but it's the idea of God's closeness, that he, he, he actually dwells among his people. He, this is referencing his presence, that he's close, that he is near, he is with his people. So look at verse uh, 15. It says, Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. You see how that first verse or verse 15 begins with the word Yet. That word yet is highlighting this contrast, that although God is enormous and big and sovereign and powerful, yet he stooped down and he condescended to choose y'all, this little ragtag group of Israelites. He, he condescended to love them. And then here's the next verse, which gets um, even more interesting, I think. Verse 18, it says this, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. It's really interesting, really surprising here, because in ancient religious cultures, typically what would happen was that there was a correlation between the king and the god. So however exalted and ornamented and decorated the god was, guess who was most ornamented and decorated within the culture? It was the king, the king and his royal family. There was sort of this connection between the two of them. But here we have... The God of the Bible saying, I am exalted, I am magnificent, I am powerful, I am transcendent, and yet I don't harness my love and my favor towards the wealthy and the strong and the powerful of society. I love the fatherless, the widow, and the alien. 
Now, we're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks because these three people groups, fatherless, widow, and alien, come up over and over and over and over in Deuteronomy. It's a big theme of this book. So we'll look at this more in detail in a couple of weeks. But basically, who are these people? These are the people who are outsiders to the dominant culture, you know, aliens, foreigners. These are people, widows, the fatherless, the people who do not have financial security, do not have social stability. As one commentary put it, uh, these are the helpless and the homeless of the culture. And God condescends and stoops down to love and show favor to these people. It's totally radical and totally crazy if you really think about it. So, you see how this passage unites these two aspects of God's character, God's transcendence and God's eminence, side by side. And here is the point. Only Christianity has a God that does this. Only Christianity has a God that, that is both transcendent and imminent. So let me explain what I mean. More traditional, typical, um, historical religions have a God that is only transcendent. He is big and he is other and he is out there, but because he is so beyond us, he's really unknowable. And because he is so beyond us, we can't even really relate to him. And because he's unrelatable, there is not an element of love to him. God is, is not loving in, in, in a strict part of his essence. One of my um, old seminary professors, Dr. Richard Pratt, was in uh, the Middle East uh, right after that huge tsunami hit in 2004, I think is when it was. And he was talking with some of his uh, uh, friends that he have made, had made over there. These were Muslim, Muslim friends of his. And he was asking them, hey, do you pray to Allah uh, you know, in light of this huge you know, travesty? And they're like, yes, of course. And then he asked, do you receive any comfort from praying to him? And they kind of looked at him really confused, like it was like a, the category didn't even make sense. And so he eventually, he eventually found out from talking with some of his Muslim friends that they weren't praying to receive comfort and, and for help. They were praying, God, don't do this to me. You are powerful, you are, you are exalted, uh, but there's not, there's, there wasn't a love, there wasn't a comfort that, was, that, was, uh, that, that they experienced as a result of praying. It was, God, just don't do this to me. Traditional religious cultures like that, but there are also more you know, typically new, progressive, postmodern spiritual movements that, that, that have a, a God that is only imminent, right? He, he dwells among us, he, he, he is us, he is the earth, he, he is loving, he loves all things. And yet, this God uh, can't really do anything for you because he is on your same plane. He's on your same wavelength. He doesn't have a transcendent vantage point to be able to help you. See what I'm saying? Um, There's this amazing clip that was taken uh, that I saw on on YouTube uh, that was taken from the show ER. And if, if you've seen it, it's, it's incredibly moving, but it's, it's this uh, four or five minute clip of this man, this older man who is uh, dying of cancer. He's on his deathbed and, and the scene takes place in the hospital. And there's this woman who is the, uh, a religious chaplain who is there talking with him and trying to you know, kind of help him as he's getting ready to die. And so I just transcribed some of the dialogue and I want to just, <laughs> without being too theatrical, read it to you. Uh, the man says this, God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man, and I ignored the sign. Not that I even hope for forgiveness. And the chaplain goes, I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. And he goes, which means what? And she goes, well, maybe your guilt over these debts has become your reason for living, and maybe you need a new reason to go on. And he goes, I don't want to go on. Can't you see that I'm old? I have cancer. 
I've had enough. The only thing that is holding me back is that I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. And she goes, well, what do you think that is? And he says, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? And she goes, I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. And he goes, so people can do anything. They can rape and they can murder and can steal all in the name of God and it's okay? And she goes, no, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all crap. And I don't have time for this now. And she goes, listen, I understand. He says, no, you don't understand. How could you possibly say that to me? I want a real chaplain that believes in a real God and a real hell. I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself. No, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all of your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. She says, look, I know you're upset. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. And then the scene ends by him just screaming to her, get out, get out, get out. The newer gods, though they are loving, though they are imminent, they can't deal with the problem of your guilt. They can't deal with your problems. They are loving, but they are... They're squishy. You can just sort of gently push these gods over. You know, they don't really have any weight to them. And, and the gods of, you know, traditional cultures are so un, beyond and so unknowable you can't relate to them. Biblical Christianity is neither. It is both and, and neither. It's a third thing altogether. God is both transcendent and eminent. The God of the Bible is both. And so what does this mean for you? When you are lonely... And you are in your room, your dorm room, or wherever, and it feels like nobody gets you, and nobody is with you to hurt with you through this pain, or whatever you're dealing with in this life. God says, the God of the Bible says, I will weep with you, I will hurt with you, I am with you. You are not an untouchable thing where I'm, I, I'm immune from suffering, I will enter in and hurt with you. And yet, even when you're going through times where you're like, I'm confused, I don't know what to do, I don't know what's the right decision here. God is also transcendent, where he's like, I have answers. I can provide you answers because I have a transcendent vantage point. Only the God of the Bible provides you with both truth and the ability to cry with you. Truth and tears. No other God can do this. Why am I talking about this? Why does this matter? It matters because what you know about somebody and who somebody truly is radically changes how you relate to them. I had a friend who had a friend, who was living in New York. And this was like six or seven years ago. This was a, a girl uh, living in New York uh, at the time. And she's in this coffee shop in Manhattan. And this dude comes in, and they strike up a conversation. And she is, uh, you know, they have a you know, wonderful conversation, I guess. And by the end of this talk, the guy asks her out. And of course, my friend's friend is taken a little bit aback and doesn't, you know, typically go out with strangers that she's just met in a random New York coffee shop. So she turns him down politely and, you know, goes on her way. Later that same day, she's out walking along the streets of, of New York City and sees this huge billboard with the dude's face on it, promoting this new show called Lost. That was Matthew Fox that she had talked to. Jack Shepard himself. And of course she's like, no, if I had only known... I would have responded differently. <laughs> so here's the point. Knowing who somebody is radically changes how we would relate to them, right? Knowing who that person was would have had a radically different response from her. So, okay, how does knowing who God is affect how we relate to him? If this is who God is, that he is transcendent, that he is imminent, 
how does this affect the way that we, that we relate to him? And here's the second point. Uh, what we are to do in light of who God is. And again, the passage shows us two different things that typically get separated, but this passage brings together. And here's the first one. Our, our appropriate response in light of who God is should be, for lack of a better word, wholehearted worship. I'll show you where I get this from. Verse 16. It says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The act of physical circumcision, which is a wonderful topic to talk about, was something that permanently marked the people of Israel. They were to be physically uh, circumcised (laughs) and therefore physically distinct. This is not the right motion I should be doing for that. (laughs) Physically distinct. They were to look different, and they did look different. And that that physical distinction was representative of a spiritual distinction. It wasn't just y'all are supposed to look different, but it was that y'all are supposed to be spiritually different. And so when Moses says, which is really interesting, circumcise your heart, what he's saying is not just, just go through the outward physical distinctions of following God as far as serving him, following all the rules, modifying your behavior, but that this should also penetrate into your heart to where your heart actually wants to worship and adore and be devoted to who God is. There should be feelings and, and, and feelings of love in your heart. And so this is what Moses is saying. You should wholeheartedly worship him. And of course, just a few, a few verses later, it just gets even further clarified. Verse 20, it says, fear your God, rather Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. These are all verbs of devotion. Fear him, serve him, hold fast to him. And of course, this kind of makes sense, right? This corresponds with God's transcendence. If God is God of gods and Lord of lords, this means that we should rightfully worship him and be devoted to him. We should pledge our allegiance to him. This is, hopefully this kind of makes sense. But here's the second way that we are to respond. The first one is wholehearted worship. Here's the second one, for lack of a better word, social support. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 19. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. God says, look in your midst. And you see the the foreigners who who have left their homeland. They are not in their dominant culture, but they are in uh, your culture. They are a minority in your culture, and they are here now living amongst you. You see those people... Love them. People who, who are minorities and, and outsiders of the dominant culture. People who don't have the financial security that they had in their homeland. That they don't have the social stability that they had. Those people who are vulnerable and weak and, and confused, love those people. And of course, God doesn't say to do something that he himself hasn't first done. The verse right before it, what does it say? Verse 18, he, that's referring to God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. God gives him food and clothing. He tangibly and concretely takes care of the needs of people who have needs. And this makes sense because it coordinates with God's imminence. If God is close and near and has at the center of his heart those who are weak and poor and needy, and if you claim that your heart is linked up to God's, then this should be on your radar as well. You should be concerned about social support, caring for those who are weak and needy and poor. And so here are the two things. Here are the two responses. Wholehearted worship, social support. Or in other words, as Jesus kind of paraphrased it, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is it, right? 
But you see the problem, right? If you look across the landscape of the religions out there, or even the churches that are out there, what typically happens? This gets polarized. And so churches or religions or whatever only focus on one and downplay the, uh, the other. This gets polarized and churches become only specialized in doing one or the other. So you have churches on this side that focus only on wholehearted worship. And these are churches or religions that typically you would describe as traditional or conservative or religious, right? And these are groups that are all about getting the right doctrine down, getting the right religious behavior in line, focusing on the church, focusing on the family, focusing on these sorts of things. And so these groups, these organizations typically emphasize the spiritual and downplay the social, right? We're all about doctrine and we're all about truth. We're all about, uh, you know, doing whatever else. And caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, anything like that, that's sort of something that just a committee does. We relegate that to the deacons or, or, or something like that. And because this is an unbalanced view of only focusing on God's transcendence, these communities typically get warped and typically get twisted. And these communities can become very tribal and very sectarian and very mean, honestly, where they make fun of people that don't have their doctrinal or theological uh, precision and lob grenades at those people because they're stupid or they're ignorant. They don't get the Bible like we do or they don't get our religious texts like we do. These are, you know, you become ingrown and and, uh, tribal and you draw lines in the the sand of these are those people and these are, you know, us, us people. And we elevate themselves to make themselves feel better based off of how theologically savvy they are or doctrinally sound they are. It's just self-righteousness. It's theology. It's basing your identity on your theology and it's making yourself feel self-righteous and proud. So that's one side. And then here's the other side. A church that only focuses on God's eminence, right? This is, these are those that only do social support. Uh, these are typically the more modern, the more liberal, the more progressive types, right? Where they're all about caring for the poor, running soup kitchens, standing up for human rights, doing stuff like that. And so they emphasize the social and downplay the spiritual. Let's not, let's not talk about doctrine, theology. Let's not, we're going to fight about that. Whatever you believe is true for you. What really matters is getting out there and helping people and loving people and serving people. So let's get a soup kitchen, let's go serve the poor or whatever, right? But because these groups typically only focus and have an unbalanced view of God's eminence, they become just as warped and just as twisted. Because what they're doing is building their identity not on their theology but on their action. And they become just as legalistic and just as self-righteous. And if you aren't as excited about the same causes they are or the same plans that they have or the same people groups that they want to go serve, then you have no heart. And, you know, how dare you? You're not doing anything. You're not, you know, lobbing grenades, both sides making themselves feel superior to the other. But here's what I want you to see. The Bible... Biblical Christianity is neither. It is a third thing altogether. It weds these two together where it says both are just as important as the other. Wholehearted worship, truth, doctrine, theology. This is important. You should know what you believe because truth matters. And you should be caring for the poor. You should be feeding the hungry and the alien and the foreigner in your midst. These two things have to go together. So here's the last question. If people typically have such a hard time of doing this, how in the world are we expected to do this? How can we do this? How can we bring these two things together? Here's here's the way forward. 
The only way that we can be the kind of people that bring together wholehearted worship and social support is if we first see what God has already done. God makes the first move. And what is it? He rescues his people from slavery. Let's just read it again. This is the last two verses, beginning in verse 21. It says, He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers went down into Egypt, were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. God rescues his people from Egypt. They were in Egypt, right? Under political oppression. 70 of them went down there. A group smaller than this room go down into Egyptian slavery. And God breaks in to space and time and rescues and liberates them. Liberates them from oppression. And now they are as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. He rescues them. But think about the nature of rescue with me real quick. It has to involve both transcendence and eminence. Because if God was not transcendent, then he would have no ability to be able to save them. He would have been on the same plane as them. He has to have a loftier vantage point to be able to stoop down to help those who couldn't have helped themselves, right? And God has to also be imminent because if he's not, then he would have had, he would have had no desire. He wouldn't have cared to, to, to rescue or to love somebody else. But that's the nature of rescue. It, it involves both. And these two things converge when God actually steps in and stoops down to help those who can't help themselves, who are broken and who are messed up and who are in slavery. But of course, as the story of the Bible unfolds, this is not the only time where God's transcendence and his eminence converge and where he actually comes down. Because as the Bible unfolds, God comes down again in the person of Jesus. And the Bible says that God, that that Jesus himself is both fully God and fully man. He is the full embodiment of God's transcendence and God's eminence in the person of Jesus. And so, what do we see Jesus doing when he gets to earth? When he's hanging out, what do we see him doing? Does he care about wholehearted worship and does he care about social service? What does he do when he comes into the temple and he sees people who are worshiping wrongly and who have their theology wrong? He starts kicking over tables, right? Because he he is concerned about worship and adoring and, and worshiping the God in truth the true God in truth. He absolutely cares about wholehearted worship. He is doing what this passage says we should be doing. Interesting. And then who do we see him hanging out with during his life? He's hanging out with women, first of all, who in in the first century had zero social status. He's hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, the sick, the hungry, foreigners, widows, the needy, the poor, Jesus is doing social support. He cares about social support. He is doing what this passage says we should be doing. So, here's the question. If he fulfills what this passage is talking about, and he fulfills it perfectly, why then is he being crucified on the cross? Because if you know anything about the culture at that time, the cross was reserved for criminals, for those who were failures, the ones that broke the law, not kept the law. And here's the point. Jesus is dying on the cross where God's transcendence and God's eminence converge in your place. This is God's rescue mission. This is where these two things converge. But think about the nature of the cross. 
If Jesus is being punished for us, and God is pouring out his displeasure on Jesus in our place, that presupposes that there was something required of us that we didn't do, right? Otherwise, why would he be being punished for us? So what was required of us that we did not do, apparently? Wholehearted worship and social service. Loving God with everything that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if we are honest about this, and I'm going to invite us to be honest about this, we are failures when it comes to this. We do not love God the way that the Bible says that we should. Sure, sure we may profess that we love God, but if we were to honestly assess what's going on in our heart, we love money, and we love popularity, and we love sex, and we love video games, and we love all kinds of other things other than God. When it says that you should be caring about the poor and the needy and serving them, if we're honest, we serve ourselves. And we serve our agenda. And the aliens in our midst, who who are they? Maybe they're international students who come to app. Are they even on your radar? People coming in who who, uh, are new here, transfer students. People who, who, who are new to the dominant culture here who don't have the social stability. We don't even think about them. Incoming freshmen, I know that y'all are kind of acclimated now, but older students, is, is, is reaching out and helping a younger freshman kind of getting accommodated and getting settled into the university on your radar at all. And I'm not saying this to shame you, because I am right there with you. My heart is riddled with idols just as much as you. And I'm just as selfish. <laughs> I don't serve the needy. Ask my wife. She will tell you. I am not, uh, not selfless. I am selfish, that's what I meant to say. We are failures when it comes to this. But the glory of the gospel is that God comes down for failures. He comes down for failures like you and like me. Transcendence converges with imminence, and Jesus is being punished at the cross in our place. And now, having been gloriously accepted by God because of what Jesus has done when we receive him by faith, how? How does this transform us and make us into the people that do both of these, that actually have the the ability and the desire to want to love God and to love our neighbor? Here's how it does it. Only the cross ties these two things together. Only the cross is able to bring in God's transcendence and God's imminence into balance to where if you get the cross in your bloodstream, as it were, and live out all the implications of what the cross is really about, this is what gives you the power. This and only this is what gives you the power to do both of these, to actually care about truth and care about worship and to care about the needy. Because why? When you recognize... First, that you are saved and that you are rescued by what Jesus has done. What does this make you want to do? Worship and adore him and care about what is truth because truth actually matters. God doesn't wipe truth away. He actually says this, is ma- this matters and the fact that you are not truthful, I'm going to have to do something about it. And so he sends Jesus and this is what prompts all the worship, right? And at the same time, this is what gives you a heart for the needy and a heart for the poor around you. Because Christians in this room, you, re- you realize, right? When you say, I am a Christian, what you are really saying is that should be me on the cross. I am the neediest, helpless, poorest sinner that I know. And were it not for Jesus, I would be in hell right now. 
That's what you're saying when you say, I'm a Christian. And this totally levels you. You no longer have the right and the posture to be able to look down on the needy and on the poor because when you say, I'm a Christian, you are saying, I am one. I am the needy and I am the poor and God condescended and stooped down to me. So now I have the ability and the love to actually want to go and help somebody else who is needy and who is poor. You see how only the cross brings these two things together, God's transcendence and God's eminence, and at the same time makes you want to worship and makes you want to care for those who are in, who are in need. Only the cross does it. And the motivation behind it is not guilt, it is not pride, it is not fear, it is joy. It is gratitude for what Jesus has done. Let me close with this. I want to address three different groups of people in the room tonight. You may be a representative, or you will be a representative of one of these three groups. If you are one, group number one, if you are one who cares about worship, and who cares about reading the Bible, and who cares about going to church, and if you haven't given much thought to actively getting involved with caring for the poor and with caring for the needy at App State and here in Boone in the larger community, then you haven't let the cross permeate and make its way into every aspect of your life yet because God is imminent and he cares for the poor and if you are a Christian, you should too. Second group, if you care about the poor and you care about feeding the hungry and standing up for those who who, uh, need your help, but you haven't given much thought or much concern to truth or what the Bible actually talks about or to worship, then you haven't let the cross permeate every aspect of your life either. Why? Because God is transcendent. He cares about truth. And he therefore should be worshipped in light of who he is. Third group. If you don't really care about either one of these, then consider the cross. And consider that an invitation to come to him. Let me pray. Father, you are big and mighty and glorious. You are also close and gentle and near and you care for the poor and you care for us. And it's a miracle that you do. And I pray, Father, when we get the cross into our bloodstream, I pray that that would make us just as concerned about quiet times as it would with uh, feeding the folks down the street. I pray that it would make us just as concerned about worship as it would about Uh, that pregnant sophomore on our hall. Pray, would you make us into a people that are radically different, people that care about truth, people that care about worship, people that care about you, and at the same time and in the same breath, we care about those in our community that need our help. Would you give us the ability and the resources and the motivation to do it, and only by the cross and only by grace and motivated by complete gratitude? Would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.